sell but there are a lot of restrictions on you know how and where and when oh you know i hadn't even thought about that that's true like because i haven't seen any advertising for it oddly enough it seems like yeah. it seems like it's really just an advertisement for itself yes really word of it's generated it's generated there's, by... a, there's a captive and desirous market you know you probably don't just you need to do too much to convince there's a whole good word of um, mouth counterculture for like 40 years that has been building up uh the advertising desire you know it's true creating the desire um well i'm sure everyone can tell already but uh, we have a prestigious guest on uh tonight's night rule uh professor adnan hussein of queen's university so this has got to be like is this number four for you i think it I is so yeah wow um it's been it's come to this i mean honestly i think uh you know, so far, so far, we're doing quite well. To be honest, I'm a little exasperated, though. You find me slightly exasperated these days. Um, and I'm trying to utilize that exasperation to discuss uh, the things that exasperate me more fully and completely. And perhaps you can help me a little bit on this topic, because I've, I've been listening to a lot of conversations lately um, where people are debating things and <clears throat> there's like an attitude it seems like there's conversations that can go in circles it seems like there's certain conversations i find out there that can go in circles you know like um people can debate pizza toppings forever for example i mean you could probably have that conversation for hours and hours and hours it reminds me of when i was a kid we'd go to the uh video rental store i had to like actually like really dig deep to remember what those things were called back then those <laughs> yeah. places you went to go get vhs tapes and if you weren't careful you could go there and walk walk around it for 45 minutes with your friends trying to choose something until you just end up like picking tommy boy again for the fifth time just because that, you just that go home. happens 
that happens to me even in Netflix. So, oh you know, God, um, when there's so many choices and there's so much uh, that's not been curated, what I like are people who produce really good lists of 10 excellent films in a certain genre. And that way there's been a little bit of the weeding out mm -hmm. that helps me because otherwise I do recall spending a lot of time at a blockbuster mm. and coming out with a very dissatisfying movie at the end because you were so exasperated that you had to choose something to make something it worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that there's a lot of conversations that exasperate me in like a political context. Like we've gone through a few recently. There was the, the kind of strategy schism brouhaha over uh, the force the vote strategy where everyone yes. flipped out and they were at each other's throats. And there was a lot of character assassination and personal attacks, which I've never felt are really like that fundamentally important to any kind of like mass social movement ultimately, you know, like you can denounce, I'm, I'm all for denunciation, don't get me wrong. Let's <laughs> denounce away, let's denounce right. to our heart's content. But I don't think denunciation itself constitutes like, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the material for like a more of, of a full bodied political change, you know, um, and that and that kind of disturbed me about the force the vote thing, because it's like a, a disagreement on strategy that got really ugly and I think uh, took up a lot of people's energy. And I think uh, was just also a little just strange to me. I just found it a kind of a strange, weird kind of show. Um, all, all the while understanding that a lot of people had, you know, serious political disagreements um, and whatnot. And then lately I've been hearing a lot of conversations about, you know, um, political violence and the importance of denouncing it. I mean, I, I think of course it's extremely important to denounce political violence, you know, but I find it a little, a kind of a funny thing for people having a Skype call to be talking about when they're kind of on a Skype call. It's like, if I'm having, you know, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and someone walks into the room and says, Hey man, you have to denounce uh, BLT. From right now, you have to denounce BLT. I know you're eating a sandwich. Just in case you decide to have a BLT later, I want you to denounce it before we get to that point. It's like, dude, like, what are you talking about? Like, we're we're not doing anything involved in bacon, lettuce, and tomato. Um, and and you know, if, and you can. It's a it's an important discussion to maybe flesh out for some people about the nuances of you know, um, you know. I think I, I was listening to David Feldman earlier, and there was someone that had the famous Kennedy quote about. Uh, he who makes uh, peaceful change impossible makes violent change inevitable or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And I think it's quite something to like, you know, I mean, even just looking throughout history, um, you know, it's it's great for me to say, okay, well, I, I denounce all these people who committed acts of violence, but it's like, what am I really doing in the world by doing that other than giving myself a smug sense of self-satisfaction and, and purity somehow? Um, all at the same time, like it, it's, 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 it's something that I, I feel needs to be discussed with, with a little bit of nuance and intelligence and an ability to hold more than one thought in one's mind at the same time, because even just the word violence is such a broad kind of catch-all term. Like I even, I've, I've started to kind of try and break it down and think about it in terms of different metaphors, like say, um, shouting, for example. Now you could say shouting is a form of violence, you know? I mean, if, if, you, if you wanna tell me that shouting isn't a form of violence, I'm gonna come scream in your face and you tell me how it feels, if that feels right. violent or not. I mean, in that it can, it, can, it's a, it can be a violent thing. And I think, you know, at the same time, there's situations where people will shout and yell that are probably socially appropriate and are not uh, a problem per se, you know, say at a sports event, political rally, um, and whatnot, but at the same time, shouting could also be an act of violence in different mm -hmm. contexts, right? Mm -hmm. So am I gonna go spend the rest of my life because I know this now, 
asking people to denounce the act of shouting in spite of the fact that it's contextual and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of interpersonal and historical conf uh, like a uh, context at play and it's really an oversimplification maybe that's what bothers me is there's this oversimplification as well um because i think you know it gives people a lot of power to actually be able to shut each other down and say if you don't pass x litmus test yes i don't have to listen to you and and right. uh it, people's people's mileage will vary. And then it's also mixed in with my, uh, something I've been thinking a lot about lately, a friend of mine, Mo, listen, Mo, if you're listening in Berlin to the show, I wanna have you on, like I've been inviting you on for a while, hopefully someday. Um, and he's actually really plugged into the art world. So he would be a really interesting guy to have on, I think. Um, speaking of NFTs and whatnot, by the way, our first Night Roll NFT coming soon. Um, it will be uh, auctioned for millions, I'm sure. Excellent. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's like, it's like we're asking for we're, we're while the right the the, the the quote from him was while the right already has programmatic unity, the left unsuc unsuccessfully enforces ideological purity, and I feel like we're all almost like metaphorically speaking. And again, we live very privileged lives. Like right just before I did this recording, I went and had a nice walk by a nice body of water with a diverse ecological habitat and ducks. And there was a, a I was within feet of two beautiful herons at a couple of points. Oh, it was wonderful. wonderful. So like my life is great. You know, I have a podcast. I'm I'm gainfully employed. You know, I have a roof over my head. It's like it's not it's not a question for me whether I'm going to be condoning political violence. There's no there's no state repression raining down hell upon me. You know what I mean? So it's a little it's a little bizarre. I think it would be a little bizarre for anyone to hold me to a kind of like litmus test on that front, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's a very theoretical kinds of kind of question. So it is a little bit like what your friend was saying in terms of uh, it being an, a question of ideological purity, but it's a strange one about ideological purity. It's really more about moral purity of a certain yeah. kind. And I think you're also, so firstly, it's very conceptual, very theoretical. And I do understand and recognize that it's important to develop our conceptual apparatus uh, so that, you know, we have a clear way of thinking and approaching problems. Of course, this is all very important, but we have to try and think also, what's the value of clarifying this in the context that we're in? How much does this matter, uh, given what we're actually facing right now and what's in front of us and ahead of us? So that's one point. The other point that you mentioned that I think is really needs emphasis is that it's so much a litmus test about what counts as legitimate political discourse. And mm -hmm. so really it's a means for policing who gets to talk, who gets to have, um, you know, political ideals that they can argue for, uh, who can uh, be in public space in a political sense. Um, and who can't, who's excluded from it. And I think the reason why you would always want to avoid these kinds of discussions, unless it was very carefully done to really, um, you know, develop in a inquisitive fashion by well, I mean, if, our allies and recognize that their allyship is, is important. Well, I mean, if you're in a protest movement, for example, if you were in a yeah. protest movement, for example, this would be an extremely important question, you know, tactically and whatnot. Like it would be really yes. pertinent to what people are about to do. And I'm sure a lot of voices would be advocating for a strict nonviolent, albeit probably, you know, confrontational approach. 
And yes. that's that's a relevant question to be having in that context. In that context, yes, yeah, exactly. But what you wouldn't want to do is just have it in the abstract um, because then it just functions as a way, really, it always tends to the benefit of the right. Yeah. That it seems to me that it's, it's um, something that advantageous advantages their isolation of the left and demonization of the left, even as all the forces in the political order that we inhabit are stacked towards supporting yeah. the right. I mean, it's an imbalance well, it, of power. It's, uh, it's, it's an asymmetrical, like, I mean, it's treating equals, uh, unequals equally. You know? Yes. Um, let me just uh, let me just quickly welcome, yeah. though, uh, Marianne Cummings to the discussion. Marianne, do you renounce uh, political violence in all its forms, as well as all of Satan's evils? Otherwise, I cannot allow you in the conversation. I'm sorry. I do. OK, yeah. great. Thank you. I appreciate that a great deal. Um, so we're talking about litmus tests. We're talking about conversations that exasperate me. The, the one we're on right now is basically this debate over, you know, people demanding a kind of ideological purity um, when it comes to questions like uh, strategy or, or uh, you know, the, the use of political violence. I mean, obviously, we're none of us advocate for political violence. I think we're all nonviolent people. I think none of us have any interest in violence. But people get caught up in this, they get swallowed by this dragon of discussion where it's like, okay, well, why, why can't we be violent? And there's actually like, in a weird way, a coercive element you can I, I detect in some of these conversations where people actually bully, like literally bully each other into agreeing with them on this litmus test, even if the litmus test is fucking non-violence, it's weird. There's like so yeah. many levels to it. It's bizarre to me. And then they're defining vi violence rather opportunistically, like, oh, your words triggered, you know, a trauma I experienced years ago. And because you're whatever, white, older, from this class, Euro, you can't possibly understand what you just did to me. Therefore, you know, I, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I really do not like the level of disingenuousness now in these conversations. I mean, people are, are using, they can, look, this goes all the way back to uh, Paula Jones. I, I mean, I was furious because she, and I was a big advocate for women. And having had experienced, you know, real harassment multiple times, and yet here's a gal that is basically, from what I point, from where I stood, uh, obviously political, and also undermining other women that have real problems. You know, you sooner or later you bastardize the language enough and you abuse it enough, uh, it's like the boy who cried wolf. You know, if, if you were uh, a few years ago, we were telling people, look, on the who are on the left, but for Hillary, which meant left is a very fuzzy concept there. But, uh, you know, if you if you're claiming that somebody like Bernie Sanders is racist or a sexist or this or that, I mean, when a real racist bully comes around, a real sexist predator comes along, your words will have been devoid of meaning because you, you know, you, you kind of bastardized them, you know, using them as a political cudgel on the guy who was the opposite of what you were saying. And I think most people who were wielding that knew it. They were just being opportunistic. Well, I mean, so, there's a lot, there's an opportunity there, obviously, because it's such a, 
difficult to define concept. I mean, for the same way, mm -hmm. something that can be as pot, like, I mean, the same way, like religion is impossible to define really in the kind of same way. And I think there's a lot of people that can retreat to the charlatanism of just like, well, that's my religious belief and that's what I believe in my heart. Um, but uh, I wonder like, it's, it, it's, it's a really difficult to define thing ultimately, you know, like, is it, is it violent to, you know, commit an act of physical violence? These are all the obvious examples that are clear, but is it violent to uh, sign someone up for a predatory loan or, you know, separate them from their family at the border or dehumanize them at like a, at an airport. Cause they're just, they're just, they happen to have committed the crime of traveling, you know, like, and these, these, these acts have a sort of, uh, they, they have a political and moral weight to them as well. And I think one thing Adnan, you were talking about before is, I mean, there is an asymmetry involved. So if, if, if one side has all this, all, all this, all this power, state apparatuses, uh, social movements, uh, mm -hmm. money, wealth, whatnot, yeah. Koch brothers, everything, political action committees, and they, but they're still able to shut anyone down and just kind of reset things to equals, equals, stalemate zero. That's a, that's a win for them. You know, that's yes, a huge I mean, win. That's why uh, liberal theory, and I don't mean just in terms of partisan liberals and so on. I mean, you know, liberal political theory, political economy, um, you know, what uh, emerges uh, from sort of Locke and Smith and so on. This kind of understanding of power um, always works so well for elite uh, elites who can capture the state, who can make sure that they actually don't have to behave as equals, but there's a theory of how um, we all have to engage in this disembodied, decontextualized way mm -hmm. as individual legal entities. And so mm -hmm. the force is already embedded in the law, in the definitions of property, in the way power works, that it advantages um, those elites. And in fact, actually, what is the state other than the way in which elites have always secured their interests and their power mm. in history in whatever system? It's just that that elite has changed in its um, you know, social and economic characterizations, whereas it used to be in the times of lords and ladies and so, uh, you know, kings and tyrants, they were the military elite, those who could wield military power. Mm. Um, now, you know, financial power and economic um, uh, uh, power and influence, um, you know, have sublimated the need for overt violence, right? I mean, obviously, the state is still uh, uh, defined in some ways by the fact that you know, it has the legitimate monopoly on actual violence and force with the military and with sure. I mean, and again, uh, we're, so you, you can get down. They don't this even whole discussion need it of, a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, and ideally, the state should be representative of the people that it governs. So, I mean, I mean it's interesting to me when you say this. This is set up perfectly for the elites uh, as they've existed up till now. It's almost as though this is like a social software that we're trying to install on our on our socialist Linux machine but it really only runs on like Windows 95 is what you're telling me. Yeah, it might, it might, not, it might not perform as well.
but it's interesting like they're kind of trying to upgrade the software by by adding this kind of code of representationalism and saying as long as yes. we kind of mix up the the diversity enough get the right kind of diverse blend um yeah. somehow that's gonna it's with it, like divorced of any kind of economic policy besides that somehow that itself yeah it's a new os that. that has different graphics and kind of you know <laughs> looks better and you get touch screen technology but you know yeah, it's but not I still really can't still can't get rid changing. of yeah. yeah the way things work can't get rid of the fucking paperclip the guy hey, hey look boris johnson as jonathan pie pointed out boris johnson has the most diverse uh cabinet in the history of the uk the only problem is that you know one of them is dark-skinned a woman and uh believes in public plugging <laughs> you know it's uh and but this is nothing new in america i mean martin luther king articulated this point in the 60s he says yeah there's a lot of so-called liberals uh are very happy with the civil rights movement but they don't want to talk about economics because yeah it doesn't cost them anything the voting rights act doesn't cost them anything personally doesn't cost them anything for us to have equal rights in terms of being able to secure loans and everything else and do business. Um, yeah, but, but the short the, gets me yeah. the, when you talk about cost, it's like, what's the cost of short term thinking? I just heard you guys talking about the tanker overturned in the Suez <laughs> Canal. You know, what's the cost of that kind of fucking short term thinking? Like, I don't I don't understand. At some point, I want the progressive left to take hold of the cost question and say, you know what, mm -hmm. guys, you've been running this store into the ground. Like, yeah. look at how much you're spending on breakage. You're 20% on breakage. It's ridiculous. We're pouring money down the drain, ultimately. Yeah, it's the same with the whole food system, that there's so much waste you know, it's not a household waste. Of course, that's a big problem. People, you know, should uh, clean their plate. You know, I always had to clean my plate, uh, you know, and not waste food. Of course, that's a small part of consumer food wastage. But really, the food wastage, billions and billions of dollars worth of food. And think of all the energy, think of all the resources, the labor that goes into producing it. And well, something like 10 to 15% is just tossed aside and, and, and thrown away at somewhere along the chain, even before it gets to the consumer, by the big grocery stores, by the shipping companies, you know? Is it, is it violent to, uh, to bring a cow into existence and then, and then to throw away the, the product of its, like the, the, the beef, you know? Is it, is it violent to have, to be wasting food all the time and have people fucking starving in parts of the world like that's a form of violence ultimately it's harder to define because it's diffuse because it's systemic it's because, oh that's absolutely true you know i mean tom hartman did point out that uh, when goldman sachs got into the uh, grains futures markets they they uh, then they were because of deregulation they were not required to be able to physically hold the grain they were buying which was mm. part of you know regulations that for, all the way back to the new deal from fdr so they uh basically jacked up the price of wheat in this in in africa by four times tom hartman's analysis estimates something somewhere of three to four million people starved as a result but who do you hang for that? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, actually, speaking of which, to make sure the uh, the grain supply maintains its uh, is, is maintained steadily here, please join us at uh, Patreon.com/slash/NightRule. I did cash out my first fifteen dollars. I was joking with Adnan that I his paid his uh, check is in the mail. 
but it did help me out of like a minor bind and definitely help my day take a brighter turn. So thank you so much to our patrons for that. Um, also, Zoom will cut us off at some point. So what do you do when Zoom cuts you off and you don't have the pro license? Can you surreptitiously just start another call? Yeah, you can start another call. Yeah, is Zoom is Zoom listening to us right now as we conspire to I've like done uh, circumvent calls with some people? You know where we oh. just started one after another. All right, if you renounce all serial Zoom calling from here on out, we can continue the discussion. That's but it's right. really important exactly. to me. It's the laws of property. You're violating. It's a, it's a violent thing. You're smashing a window, Adnan. That's right. <laughs> okay, well, well that's call. another point. Is that so often the definition of violence seems to encompass. Uh, attacks or destruction of property as if that is as sacrosanct, sacrosanct as life uh, itself. And of course, that's also part of the liberal ideal and liberal philosophy is that they feel that freedom is guaranteed through property. And so it's something that really is almost holy. Um, and I think that is something we really do need to distinguish between, you know, property is a tool for allowing us to live and nothing should be, uh, you know, no instrument should come to rule over human and humane values. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, also another problem with this discourse is that it seems to equate and put on a continuum, um, you know, property versus bodily harm. It makes these yeah. things as if they're the same. And the other kind of issue I think that is often left out of it is that it is actually enshrined in law as a result of our history in international law that an occupied people who are suffering colonial occupation, whether it's settler colonialism or other forms of colonialism, do have the right to resist. It's essentially self-defense on a social level and on a social scale. And that is uh, legitimately part of international law. It's part of the UN Charter that, you know, people can uh, determine their future and resist, you know, by the means that they may find necessary. And so then it's just really a matter of ethical choices, of practical choices, of what makes the most sense, what will build the kinds of solidarities or be effective. But I think this ruling out of any possibility really denies a fundamental principle of anti-colonial struggle that has been so important in the 20th century and freed peoples from uh, colonial occupation and continues to be a right that has to be asserted. Well, it's, a, it's, it's an anti-historical, anti-intellectual, anti-contextual argument, you know? I mean, again, like, if someone's trying to murder me, I have a right to defend myself. That's enshrined in law because they, you know, they probably understood hundreds of years ago that there's a context for everything. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, in Palestine, someone's going to have a completely different moral calculus than someone living on the West Coast, you know, in Vancouver with socialized medicine and the, the world's best marijuana dispensaries, as far as the eye can see, and duck ponds to fucking go walk by to clear his head after work, you know, it's like, it's just, it's just weird to me that like, people get so caught up in the discussions and they get kind of caught in this temporal causality loop, like that episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where they just keep on living the same few days over and over. And I feel like ultimately the end result is a movement that's more segmented, that's more that's more fractured, where people have grudges against each other, people have axes to pick, people are ending friendships over Zoom calls in real time, over debates that, you know, it's like, if I'm part of a vast social movement, my, uh, my requirements to be an ally of someone or to interact with them for the purposes of that movement are going to be different than for people that are my closest friends and confidants, you know, 
those people have to be ultimately aligned with me on certain key things. And it would be an issue if I had some big disagreement because I was some, you know, Keynesian social Democrat versus this or that. Um, but like, are, are we wasting time having arguments when we should be kind of like storming the, the Bastille, so to speak? Like, are, are we debating too much about how to storm the Bastille instead of just storming the Bastille, metaphorically speaking? Hmm. That's a good question because like I don't even know what storming the Bastille exactly would be. The closest thing I have in my head is that we need to, if progressives need to tell the Democrat, communicate to the Democratic Party that we'll refuse to vote for them. Mm. I mean, this is not a new thing. I mean, there was a, uh, I saw a video, people were uh, spreading around on YouTube of Lawrence O'Donnell from back in 2007 on some show, he was being interviewed and he said, you know, the whole entire time I worked in the Senate and he was like a, a senior aide to Daniel Moynihan, I think he was chief of staff, but he spent 20 years working in the Senate. And he said, I never had to listen to the left ever for anything. And if the left wants to be taken seriously and if the left wants to have its agenda pushed, they must, and he emphasizes three times, they must refuse to vote. Hmm. and make that convincing. And, uh, you know, I, I think that the way I see it and the way I sort of gut feel it is that Bernie Sanders and the squad have dissipated a lot of the enthusiasm by their just seemingly not, not fighting with Dem leadership. I mean, my God, I like Pramila Jarpol, but they, they, she seems to be a PR arm now of Pelosi, rather than using the real power they have, the real leverage they have to start extracting concessions now. And it's not, this is not theoretical. I mean, people are getting poor to the extent I don't think, I literally don't think people who live in Washington, DC understand. I think they don't believe how, pe how poor people are out here. And even, even when I was going through, uh, going door to door in Aurora here, because uh, I'm working on a mayoral campaign, mm. the gal I was with was appalled by how poor some of these homes looked. And this is in the suburbs of Chicago. Mm. And she was up north, you know, in the more affluent areas. And I think it was, it was a real eye-opener eye to her to just see that, wow. I mean, this is this isn't like in the ghetto of a big inner city. This is right here in the suburb. So yeah, uh, so I think that storming the Bastille. I think I don't think it's violence or counterproductive at all to say I will absolutely not give my vote away for nothing. And I'll primary you. I'll I'll make your phone oh, yeah. ring off the hook. You know, um, I'll, no, build, like, I'll build I'm a local political movement that's more progressive. I mean, the squad is probably a little more receptive to pressure, at least. Yes, than the and centrist they are. Democrats. And, they, and they are responding, by the way, yeah. to that yeah. pressure, even though they're complaining about it. I mean, <laughs> the, the the progress is incredibly painfully, horrif horrifyingly yeah. slow at a time of unbelievable, uncalculable need. So I think yeah. I think the frustration is really palpable out there. Um, but like well, that's I, I, the thing, it's the it's the um, mismatch between the rhetorical 
explanation and description of the problem, its scale, its intensity, its imminence, mm. and what we see in terms of action and the rationalizations of the inability to do more as just inside baseball, parliamentary procedures, and these sorts of things. I think it's there's such a disjuncture between those two things that it's more than frustrating. It's it's um, kind of disturbing. Like if, if how we're responding in the face of such cataclysmic changes on the horizon, yeah, how will we ever, even if, even if you do get more progressives in there, are they suddenly going to, um, you know, change their entire approach and be incredibly aggressive and demanding and also creative? Because I feel like that's another issue is that we haven't actually thought through all of the things that we need to do. I think, you know, Marianne, you were just speaking a little bit about the scale of the energy question. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not as if the slogan of a Green New Deal or this is anything other than an opening and an invitation to doing the very serious thinking that's going to require a lot of creative ideas and collaboration and cooperation in order to even have a chance, it seems, to develop an alternative system of energy and an economy based on it. How are we going to get to that if we're still trying to fight over that slogan and whether you should be willing to pressure, you know, your political leaders to do to do more? Yeah, I was invited, uh, being invited to have a uh, discussion of nuclear energy and to let, uh, just to let Isaac know, I'm a particle physicist. My company is particle and accelerator physicist, but we are designing a nuclear reactor to run subcritically using particle physics technology. In other words, the, uh, the current nuclear reactors are literally they're they're from the early 50s i mean sure. and they're yeah. and they were not designed to be optimal they they're not optimal for energy production at all but they were you know they they were running fuel cycles that produced plutonium things like it they wonder why why didn't we go with thorium reactors why didn't we do all these other kind of reactors much more efficient well because plutonium wasn't being produced and so we have you know our energy industry has been, you know, basically an oligarchy of defense contractors <laughs> since the 1950s. It's really true. And they're even admitting it now. And, and so this, uh, like the conference I've been on, you know, it's been a lot of young people who are nuclear engineers who are super enthusiastic about Green New Deal. I mean, they're super enthusiastic about um, solar and wind, but they know to make solar and wind uh, scale up to even begin to meet our energy needs. You need a reliable, what they call load uh, producing energy because wind and solar are intermittent. You have, there's enormous problem with battery and energy storage. Uh, the, new, the new nuclear reactor technology is trying to solve that one, but also, you know, you have to, what they call load following. You have to have reliable energy that's on. And sure. what happens if there's peak load? It's, you know, it, it's a real, and these are all real technical issues. I don't think I want to spend my time arguing with an old school friend of Pete Seeger's, you know, guy whose idea of like a movement is a song, however nice that song was, and not hardcore thinking about, you know, to replace the oil, you have to understand what the oil is, what the oil meant. It's an amazingly rich, energy dense source 
as opposed to the diffuse sources up until the 1980s, or, not, or rather 1800. 1800 is wood burning, you know, and maybe some, maybe steam, but basically wood and coal. And the oil made the industrial revolution possible. It made the scale of modern cities possible. You have to produce that with something that is at least as dense. And you know, so nuclear is the obvious thing. However, we are going to have to transition long-term to a technology that's genuinely sustainable. The current solar uh, technology is not sustainable at all, even though I am totally 100% for pushing solar as far as you can. Um, but you know, you have to have the conversation that, that what was that movie that Michael Moore produced? Planet of the Humans. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, it, that just caused people knee jerk, you know, like Tyrannosaur to reel up on their Tyrannosaur hindbrains and just attack the guy who made the movie when he was bringing up some incredibly valid points. If you let quote marketplace forces drive solar and wind, well, you're going to have the same kind of problems that you have with oil. You're going to have a company that wants to lock in on a technology that should be rapidly evolving. But the, you know, the companies, they, they, they don't have 10-year research horizons. They don't even have six-month research horizons. So that's what I'm saying. We have to have everybody at least be able to listen and talk about the scale of the problem and for lefties who are anti-nuke, for instance, and I don't blame them uh, for, for feeling that way, but they need to have, they have to listen to scientists who are telling them that, you know, the scale of the problem in replacing oil requires this well, suppo supposedly they believe in science, you know, so, you know, let's well, they believe in science yeah. when it's convenient. Yeah, I mean, look, convenient. the CDC just came when out with. Yeah, when this, it's a sign of moral superiority, they believe in it, right? You know, this CDC is when it becomes valid. <laughs> with new guidelines for social distancing from reduced from six feet to three feet. Where, where the devil did that come from? I mean, you know, it's. There's only three immunologists, you know, uh, that yeah. I will listen to, like Irritable right. Henry and Michael Osterholm from SIDRAP up at University of Minnesota. But, um, you know, it's so, I don't know, well, maybe I, I should have this argument with this old, old hippie, <laughs> because I well, need to, well, I, I need problem. to figure out how to have this conversation where he feels I'm agreeing with him because I actually am agreeing with him on a, some essential level. Yeah. You know? And, and, you know, what, like, like successful political movements were probably really uh, strengthened by people that could agree on 60% of things, albeit mm -hmm. maybe disagree passionately on the other 40%. If they could agree on 60% of the things in there and they were, they implement a strategy across the board, whether, and, and there's all kinds of examples you could put out there, whether it's acting locally or, globally um that's incredibly powerful so yeah. i i just want to i want to know i want to know i want i want to think about how to build a political movement how to exist within a political movement where i can i can align with people programmatically without having to worry about agreeing with them on every little thing because that's never going to happen because ultimately right. people on the left are a little more i mean quite frankly thoughtful and they 
They understand that there's divisions that are meaningful and, and sometimes they have passionate debate about minutia. But at the same time, you know, if, if I sign up for Donald Trump's email list, I'm going to get 25 emails in two days. Whereas if I signed up for Joe Biden's, part of the problem is we do have this kind of zombie at the heart of the movement, you know, of, of neoliberal centrism. So that, that, that inevitably puts us behind the eight ball in terms of overcoming people's dejection. What is the zombie you're referring to, Isaac? Just, uh, I mean, you know. Not a person, it's just a whole- It's a metaphor. It's, it's a, a metaphor. metaphor. At, the, at the same time, you know, probably in terms of uh, people that are amenable to political influence, the, the kind of coterie of, of advisors around the administration right now are probably, you know, like they could all be a little mini FDR. They probably wield incredible power. I mean, some of the things in the, the stimulus package, like the aiming to have child poverty by a certain point yeah. and whatnot, like there's, there's stuff in there that's pretty there's powerful. Stuff. So that's proof positive that um, I'll, I'll be it mixed in with a, with a horrible miscellany of, of, of shit, quite frankly, pardon my French, there, there is good stuff happening, you know? Well, well there think... is the idea that, you know, you can just spend money and that it isn't breaking some cardinal sin of politics that you can sure. deficit spend like Roosevelt did. You can deficit spend because the real deficits are not money. It's not a leisure. It's what hasn't been done in the last several decades to build up our infrastructure, to build up our human capital, to build up a system of education and healthcare. These are all investments. And these aren't expenditures. These are investments. Really, you know? Yeah. Look, right. I'm walking around a path uh, in, in, in uh, Aurora that was built by the WPA. Yeah. We had a meeting uh, with, with people on a old hospital project in a grade school that was a WPA grade school and it's gorgeous. Sure. I mean, it's a gorgeous building. No, there's not a and, part of America that doesn't have some part of the New Deal. Yeah. And that's, that's for fuck's sakes, everyone, that's almost 100 years ago. Look at that kind yeah. of legacy. I mean, how much, how much in, in real dollars, in like today's dollars, did they spend for that facility you saw? You know? yeah. And how much value has that given the community? It's immeasurable. When you, when you can invest in things that affect the public good, things like public education, things like common, uh, so, like just social spaces for people to be in. Right. Libraries, research facilities, observatories, bridges. You know? I mean, that, that's the thing. We have still the jewel of our scientific infrastructure, our national laboratories. They should be turbocharged. I mean, the, the R&D spending on, on, on solar panels because the current is not, the current technology is not sustainable, but there's lots of tech, material science is very, very, uh, that's very, very promising. We should be like, there should be no scientist that, or a person getting a PhD in physics who is at, at all competent should go unemployed. I mean, it, it's just, and we're letting you know these people with vast amounts of education just have to get jobs, you know, in the financial sector or whatnot. I mean, maybe a few could model things in a sane way, but the but the vast majority, you know, we it's like we're the real commodity, the the real uh, wealth is in our our people's ability to do things, and we're tossing that away. You know, we're taught. The food is bad enough, but we're tossing away people. We're tossing away enormous amounts of creative and technical potential. 
because these kids are struggling to just get a job to like pay off, you know, their monthly student loan bills. Quote uh, Langston Hughes, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? I mean, how many, just what, what, what is the cost to the human race when people's potential on an individual level, I mean, just, I mean, it's a low percentage chance, you know, that you're going to get an Einstein or a Twain or a Beyonce <laughs> or whatever it is, you know, but the, there's a chance there, you know, just on a species oh, well, level. I think, I think if nature was a self-aware being, it would look, look at us with great uh, pity that we, that we are, that we're kind of on a species level, not, a, people talk about people meeting their individual potential. I actually think the human speed, the human, if you think about it on a species level, Right. The potential of our entire species is being inhibited. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm looking at these homes that I'm going door to door at, and it's like these prairie style and arts and crafts. And I mean, there's one road, they are, there's an architectural example of over 150 years worth of home, home designs. And just the kind, you don't have to be a, a Mark Twain or an Einstein, just the level of competence that produced this. And this is what people did. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's thousands of people in, in national laboratories that, who just, who are utterly anonymous, you know, whose names will never be known, but they did invaluable calculations or they figured out a problem or they put together mm -hmm. an experiment that made the right measurement. And they had did it with a level of integrity that, you know, to this day, we can, we have this technology, these CAT scans, you know, this laser surgery, mm -hmm. we, it, mm -hmm. it's just, we- Fantastic point, fantastic point. That, that is the capital that we're not appreciating. I mean, I'm in the hundred, my house that I'm sitting in was made in 1888. I'm still discovering things about this house that's just astounding, you know, like the level of competence. And, it, and this house is gonna be around for another hundred years if I do all the repairs properly. But it's just, the, the, what a monument to just, I, I don't know what it is. It's, it isn't love, but it, there is something when you are like when a musician is, is just in a groove or somebody is just doing something where their whole body is aligned and their whole mind body is just at ease. And it's just something, it's, it's I don't know, sacred. Yeah, it's, it's something beautiful. I mean, it's yes. because they were creating and producing and making and fulfilling these potentialities without mm -hmm. being formed utterly by the absolute ruling necessity yeah. of profit that you had to maximize the profit and i think that's one thing that's happened with even the built environment as you're speaking about it is treating it as just opportunities for producing that surplus value that profit and generating it as quickly and constantly as possible well and also just parking it as well with real estate i mean that's where rich people are parking their money the world over as well quite unproductively actually as well right but it, but it depreciates you know far less than than other places you might put it as which it's just kind of yeah a whole nother level i don't think a lot of these advances if we actually study them historically like great scientific insights and achievements they're not done by people who were thinking for in, in many cases, I believe, uh, about the profitability. They were thinking there's a problem. How would I solve it? They're mm -hmm. trying to meet a need. 
they use their ingenuity and invention and then of course there are ways in which those can be you know become profitable and mac but you know so much of our scientific achievements are funded by public dollars you know by scientists like, who are just, like most of them yeah most of them they're interested <laughs> like, in solving the problems they are exercising their curiosity their creativity and so this idea that we have to have um progress yoked to profit just seems so backwards well you know all we need to do direction. all i need to do is uh my, my friend's dad was julius younger who was he he was the guy that jonas salk hired to lead the pittsburgh team developing the polio vaccine and his vaccine won it was like what they like a dead vaccine that he was able to come up with a multiplicative type process that was very very accurate and you had a reliable vaccine he saved the goddamn world. Mm -hmm. You know, he saved the world and they didn't get a dime profit. Sure. Who was it? The, the two people that came up with insulin, you know, uh, that you could uh, that that you could manufacture for diabetic. I mean, they sold the patent to I think they, there were a couple of guys in Toronto sold the patent of it to the Canadian government for a dollar. Yeah. 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 Very famously. Um, so what else is, uh, by way of, uh, of mixing up the conversation, like what else is, uh, what else is at top of, uh, Adnan's mind these days? I mean, I know we're hoping to have a conversation, a historical based conversation with Arjun from deep into history sometime in the next while. I think that's going to be a fun one. Um, yes. I'm looking forward to that. Thinking about maritime sea peoples, um, in, in a way this, uh, Suez, uh, canal, uh, story was fitting into, uh, my thinking about historically, uh, trade and the sea and sea peoples. Um, and, uh, so I've been thinking definitely about that and looking forward to that conversation. Of course, I'm also thinking a little bit and it's connected to the question of, uh, political violence and, um, resistance to settler colonialism and the right uh, of resistance um, because I'm going to be talking a little bit about the Battle of Algiers. So. Of course, really powerful, powerful film, really from the first scene. It's, it's got an incredibly powerful opening scene that really grips you. Um, That's right. I think it's probably in the public domain almost by now, right? Like people, can you get it on YouTube? Yeah, you, I think you can watch it on YouTube. Yeah, yeah definitely sure. recommend that to everyone. Criterion collection, so there's a lot of uh, associated materials, background, interviews, documentaries, discussions with participants and experts and so on that also are really uh, valuable. But I think, you know, what's interesting about it is that it's from 1965 and it was controversial for exactly the same reason and question about political violence. And when you see that movie, and you realize that in some ways we haven't gotten past that discussion. That's what's concerning. So in terms of our whole discussion about all these other possibilities and potentialities, we need to be having those conversations and we can't be wasting time, you know, talking about these sort of fruitless internecine circular mm. arguments that are just mm. sapping energy and unity mm -hmm. and mental capacity when we've got urgent matters to discuss. So maybe the best way to deal with those conversations or those, you know, false debates that seem to arise and distract us is to say, 
I'm not interested in talking about that. Maybe that's a preoccupation you have, but you know what I am interested in speaking about is how are we going to solve this energy question like we were talking about and let's have that. That's a productive conversation. This other conversation isn't actually productive politically or intellectually. These are issues we need to get past because they're not relevant in the immediate term of what we're facing. My exasperation is is reduced. Thank you so much. I, I I couldn't agree more. I just think, but I think we're we're living in a, an age where the risk of those kinds of divisive, pointless, circular conversations is probably at an all time high because we're all trapped at home. Yes. We can only really have these. You know, there's there's a culture of online discussion. I mean, I think also there's a little bit of a conflation. I feel as uh, the between almost the types of discourse you could have, you know, like I think if, you know, say you're at your local DSA somewhere in the States or uh, some kind of socialist meeting in Canada, wherever you are in the world, you're going to have a different discussion actually in a strategy meeting in that context within that group than you are among your closest friends um, or than you would have in front of like an audience if you're doing some kind of speaking event. And I feel as though all these different types of, uh, and, and there's a value in kind of like, say, a really intense debate amongst, you know, uh, a, a small group of people who are really passionate about what they're talking about and who may, you know, end up like having really strong disagreements that, but it's, if they're, in a, if they're in a space where it's safe to do that, then it's fine. But if that's the space where they do that is also the space where everyone watches and everyone listens and mm. it's all disseminated. And it's also the same space where everyone's actually trying to align and strategize and enact some kind of action then uh, that, the potential for that kind of distraction is really gonna stay there. And I feel as though we need to actually find a way of modulating, okay, well, what conversation, what is the, con what is the environment this conversation is taking place in? Is it actually suitable for what we're aiming for? And some of those differences of venue and audience and community are a little bit erased when everything is in a Zoom room, you know, yeah. and they can be flattened yeah. and we lose a little perception of like, well, who actually are we speaking to? Um, what's this, uh, the meaning of this conversation? Well, in a way, we're kind of ultimately only speaking to ourselves on a certain level, you know, like I, I might feel great if I say, you know what, Adnan, I, I, I don't feel you sufficiently renounce political violence. I feel morally superior to you. You know what, Marianne, I feel like you haven't sufficiently renounced nuclear energy. I feel morally superior to you. And that's all I've achieved. And that's maybe more satisfying than anything else that happened to me earlier in the day. But in the, <laughs> long, in the long run, it's going to be nowhere near as satisfying as actually helping people that need help desperately or making the world just in whatever tiny way you can a slightly better place. Perhaps that's why um, accompanying our political ideas and that intellectual work that we need to do, we also have to grow up, be a little more mature, develop ourselves, not be acting in such an egoistic self, you know, aggrandizing fashion, because I think there is such a danger on social media with these attenuated interactions and the way in which everybody is sort of in charge of their own self promotion and derives so much of their identity already through expression on social media. And that's only enhanced by the limitations on genuine social engagement and interaction that there's a real danger that you put more of your effort or so much of your effort and attention in that self, um, you know, self bolstering, attention seeking validation, 
You know, mm -hmm. oh, I got all these likes for this kind of provocative. I got 16,000 likes. I'm somebody. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, when it should be, you know, what can we achieve, you yeah. know, to change and improve this world? And um, so we, we do need that kind of emotional development, I think, yeah. to have some restraint. Well, and we need to wean ourselves off of that addiction, you know, yeah, of uh, which is 15,000 15, likes, uh, you know, like that's, that's the end. That's anathema to solidarity. Ultimately, if my, yeah. if my tweet got the 15,000 likes, that's, that's, that's existing in a whole different fucking universe than something like solidarity. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, that's me, me, me ultimately. Um, but you know, like <laughs> the, we, okay, so what do we have to overcome? We have to overcome the zombified corpse of uh, of neoliberalism at the at the core of our political movement. So you know, we may have a federal candidate that we cannot really get enthusiastic about at all, yet we still want to build some kind of political movement that whirls around the the democratic left or the progressive left, whatever you want to call it. We have to have people have to overcome their emotional immaturity. People need to be aware of conversations that will just draw them into a kind of intellectual quicksand. Because I really don't think people are aware of the intellectual quicksand to the extent that they should be. And I'm sure, you know, hopefully we can continue to have conversations in the podcast about, you know what, like this conversation is something, I remember I read a book on philosophy years ago and it said, you know what, just don't, don't get too focused on epistemology. If you go down the path of epistemology, you'll never come out again. And I was like, okay, great. I'm never going to worry about epistemology. Now, some people would say, oh, I can't, how could you say you studied philosophy? You don't know about epistemology, Isaac. You don't know anything. You don't know how you know nothing. But at the same time, I, you know, I, I know it probably would, it, I'm, I'm happy that I probably avoided a lot of unnecessary digression in my in my intellectual life. We could all be brains and bats. How would yeah, we know? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm just no, gonna I'm know, just gonna go on some gut gut instinct and uh, assumptions about my material existence. How about you know, uh, Isaac? Have you ever listened to uh, Falco talk about how he how um, there there's a guy that that I think is mostly on the. Uh, uh, Feldman office hours, and he is in Falco Belgium, class please. class warfare. Yeah, good yeah. friend of the show. Haven't had him on yet, but Falco's great. Oh, yeah. but, but union union organizer. Yeah. He but what he he talked about one night months ago was the first time I heard him, and he's talking about what really is going on when people are quote unquote just discussing things, mm. and it was just mm. a breakdown of how a really effective moderator operates and how mm -hmm. what are they doing? Are they just calling attention to themselves? Are they really trying to express something? Are people's response really logical or is it bullying? It's it's just was a fascinating way of how to be a moderator and how to avoid people getting, you know, like being cornered, how to avoid giving empowerment to people who are just bullying or just taking the floor. It was just I wish I had a, a recording of that because that was probably one of the most useful hours. <laughs> you know what? I have, to, I have to have him on. That's a great yeah. reminder because I've been meaning to have him on. So yeah. I asked him to produce uh, some notes or slides and post it on Discord. I don't know if he's done it yet, but, but I also found that incredibly useful, inspiring, but also deeply disturbing because I <laughs> looked at myself and I said, I'm doing none of these correct sort of procedures mm. and I'm falling mm. into all of these terrible well, traps. So mm. uh, it definitely was a little bit of a shock, um, a yeah. good shock, but um, there are ways to communicate that are much more healthy and fostering of right. 
productive, you know, interaction. So we should learn them. Well, as somebody who's worked on big collaborations and many people use meetings as a way to like advance their career, like I'm calling a meeting. Sure. I headed I a group and I had a meeting like once every two weeks. And I wrote a report only once every four months because like, hey, we got work to do. And so I was running the anti-meeting and, uh, but I had a lot of great guys. I had some of the smartest people who just didn't give a fuck about all of this politics. So I was very, mm -hmm. I mean, I was very lucky. Sounds like but, a wonderfully collaborative environment. Yeah, I mean, and you know, back in that time, when I guess we all thought that sooner or later, if you were competent, you were just going to get a job someplace, National Lab. I mean, you didn't care, but most of us didn't care about getting the limelight. When after the, the big uh, super project got canceled, then suddenly that was the one that was in Texas that was going to be way more power powerful than the one that's currently operating over in Geneva, Switzerland. Mm. And suddenly burn, that- Burn, right? Uh, CERN. CERN, CERN, CERN. CERN, yeah, it's like, it's, it's these branch, it is central energy, nuclear, I don't know, something like that. But anyway, um, uh, when that happened, and then suddenly all of these hundreds of possible faculty jobs just evaporated and the labs had to shut down, then it was just, it was ridiculous, you know, and I was just sitting back. I'm, all, I'm fatalistic to begin with. I've, I've been fatalistic since I was a kid. So I'm just watching this debacle. And even though I ended up getting a few faculty uh, uh, interviews, I'm sitting there like with a bad attitude, like, <laughs> why am I trying to impress you punk, you know? But I'm being my normal outside cheerful self. But it's, uh, you know, this isn't, this is no longer competitive. There are five of us trying for one job. That would be super competitive if we were all competent. A hundred of you applying for a job. I mean, that, that, that is just now purely political and that's what it became. And so scarcity uh, works really well for the people who like to hire and fire people mm -hmm. yeah. or a certain kind of, uh, that, that works very well. But it is also inefficient, as you're pointing out, because but inefficient for busy. who? For the people well, who want to get rich, it works for them. Well, even yeah. even, even for them, I would say is you're not Long actually term. getting the best from people because they're right. spending a lot of their time trying to promote, calling all the extra meetings to, you know, draw attention to themselves and so on. They're not actually doing their best work. Because you got to put it into marketing yourself and and, and the politics oh, yes. and playing the game. Right? Well, it's actually so. reifying that kind of anti-work, that hustle. I mean, you know, that's right. You, the bullshit you, jobs part of it. Yeah, you have to hustle because there's not an actual like apps like rationally designed apparatus for you to participate in. You know, right. yeah. It's uh, I, we're like choosing on a on a business level. We're like choosing to go back into like the robber baron. What can you get away with? Age on so many yes, levels. Yes. And and I really, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't see it ending well if we continue down the. No, path. I you know I'm I'm gonna try to make this movie tomorrow and um, but yeah. I saw I watched the other night with a friend the Greats of Rat. Now I'd mm. seen that movie a long time before, and I'm still astonished. And how great that movie is and mm. that that movie even got made hmm. i mean because that's a, a very powerful um uh, kind of subversive yes. kind of subversive movie yes and 
you know, and, and I do remember having read The Grapes of Wrath in high school. I think that's when I first saw it. They played the movie in class. But the one scene that Michael Moore actually quoted like many years ago about uh, one scene where basically they piled up all the oranges and the owners of the orange field, uh, orange groves just poured kerosene all over them and lit them because you couldn't have, it wouldn't profit them to have a surplus of oranges, you know, as well everybody's kids are starving and suffering from rickets or, you know, our scurvy and all these oranges going, it, there's something that was so evil. It was beyond evil, you know, tragic beyond tears or something It's very powerful, but it's like, man, I think what it is, it's just soul emptying. Well, it's a, it's when like you, an epigenetic thoughtlessness that's been imposed on but, I mean, the it's human, just like the human you, species where it's like, just yeah. forget about it. You're going to make money. So don't worry about how it makes you feel. <laughs> But it's like, but it, hollows us, but it hollows everybody out in a profound way sure. when we just, you know, acquiesce in this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, that, and that's what, no, you, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit what you were talking before, you know, how mm. do we get past this? And I think a very practical thing and one that Bernie Sanders asked everybody to do was to run for office and sure. run for very local, local office like I have done. And like uh, my friend John Lash is doing, mm -hmm. uh, because then it's then it stops being theoretical. Then you have to confront people. I, I was, somebody was yelling at me today because John didn't stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. I don't, <laughs> and, and like, how dare my sons went off to war, you know, to, mm. and I'm like, boy, this is posture. But I like, you know, I realize that people want to yell at you because it feels good. And, you know, they do not resent you if you let them yell at you, you know, mm. <laughs> but um, it's still, you deal with all these people and they're all frustrated and it becomes real. And then you have to like become an adult, like Falco would ask us to be. And John does naturally my the guy running for uh mayor of yeah. aurora Illinois. so tell so, us more because you're yeah you're on the ground you're in the middle of that yeah. mayoral campaign in aurora like what like you said you're shocked at the level at the level of uh uh poverty or the need out there door to door well i wasn't shocked i knew you know it. other um, others were yeah what else are you seeing but, on the ground there? Like, tell us more about the whole the whole campaign oh, now. How that's it's, going. it's it's really great because you we have people liking John who you wouldn't think would like him and it would you know it's like uh, so contrast with that very poor neighborhood I went to a neighborhood and I was looking at my list going wait a minute all these actresses say Neighborville why do we, why do I have this list they're actually Aurora but they petitioned for a Neighborville address you know I guess I guess some people out in the Hollywood area want to live in a certain zip code and, you know, because that impresses possible producers or possible employees, I don't know. But I was looking Probably around, it was, it was this one development mm. that was like, obviously people are living in these five to $700,000 McMansions. And it just struck me, this is gonna be the new poverty road a few years, these people are, because I'm looking when I when I'm talking to some of the people, some of these houses have no furniture. These people are leveraged to the hilt. Mm. They're more economically insecure than I am, or people in my neighborhood are. And uh, I was stunned by how some people, of course, some people wanted me to just get the hell off their porch, but others <laughs> were surprised 
I mean, some one guy was telling me there's somebody like this running. I had no idea who this guy was. And I said, hey, you know, you can even give John a call. He'll tell you, he'll return your phone call. Um, but I was surprised because I think even people who have uh, are in a very high status area know how precarious their high status, you know, they can be mm -hmm. evicted from this class. There's no guarantee that once you achieve like middle class or upper middle class, you get to stay there. Yeah. That's been evident to my people in my neighborhood for generations, but these people are people who kind of it's dawning on them that how precarious, I mean, these people are living paycheck to paycheck too. Yeah. And this is what's, there, there is a dread. And I think the humanity and this sort of community that John is trying to run on is, I, I think is healing in a way to people. People don't want to talk about differences. People, I mean, people who worry, but John went and spoke with the gun club, all these gun nuts that were <laughs> NRA types. And they, they're they're with John. He's speaking to various ethnic groups. There's a, there's a couple of prominent black pastors who personally told me they can't because the current mayor is a Republican, but he's a black dude. And, you know, I think a lot of the people I know here are just happy that somebody from their neighborhood made it, you know, so I under, I get it. And we're not, it, John has run an amazingly positive campaign the whole time. And he's pointed out things that he thought were big mistakes, but he is, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to learn from him. I like sitting, sitting at his uh, at headquarters, you know, listening to him talk to people on the phone mm -hmm. because it's very, it helps me when I go door to door for him, but it's also, yeah. When's, uh, when's election day? It's April 6th mm. and early voting is now. Um, he, we were just getting exit polls from the early voting over 50%. And this is for John and this is a three-way race. Wow. There, yeah. So great. I don't know how to weight this. You know, I don't know if what selection bias there is from people that went to early vote and were polled, but, uh, Boy, it's 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 better than not having these numbers, that's for sure. Mm. But that, but I'm going to be spending a lot of time doing this because I find I, I like talking about what we can do. It's a very well, and, and like hopefully, you know, hopefully you pull it out. But even you know, like a mayoral race that just falls barely short can be a springboard to all kinds of other stuff, you know. And I think well, I think that's one really, thing people need to yeah. realize, like that that kind of local political engagement. Um, bears fruit on multiple levels. And I find it interesting that you say it almost was almost healing. Like the concept of politics being healing is is kind of okay. like a little strange to hear. It sounds a little strange on the ears, well, but I what, what an on, idea. Yeah, well, I was on his campaign in 2008. He ran against Denny Hastert in 2006. Wow. And he organized, I mean, no, the Democratic Party wouldn't touch this district with a 10 foot pole. And Denny Hastert was like, just considered, you know, you could, but, but there was one point where John was polling within single digits mm -hmm. and Hastert got his butt down here, up here from Washington and spent $5 million wow. against the, against John's $300,000. And, but John ended up getting more than 20, 40% of the vote as, as a reward, the democratic party decided to go with my old friend, Bill Foster the self-funding millionaire the next time around. And we were, uh, that was a very hard fought primary. 
And in the end, John lost that primary by less than 400 votes. I still think about these 400 votes to this day. And we were talking about that, you know, about a year later. And a friend of mine who's also on the campaign says, well, this is what, there are so few good campaigns, but this is what a good campaign does. A good campaign transforms everybody who takes part. Mm. In that sense, I find Bernie Sanders, the only equivalent was Bernie Sanders' campaign. Mm. It's like, you're changed by having been part of this campaign. And I think what's going on now is that John's work in tireless advocacy for all different kinds of groups may be bearing fruit in this election. And it's only a mayoral race, but it's the second largest city in, in Illinois. And I guarantee if John wins this definitively, he will become the most prominent politician in the state. Hmm. Because of what it, what it represents. Mm-hmm. Will you come back on on uh, April seventh and uh, and check in with oh, us? Oh, I'd be how it went and share some to. lessons, and that would be great. I know um, we should probably wind down. I think you guys both did Feldo. By the way, would either of you like to um, uh, publicly state for the record that you will never be appearing on my podcast again, just while we're recording, because that could be exciting. I don't know what happened there. I don't know if you were watching that earlier. That was no. a little intense. Bert Ross, uh, like basically just like resigned from the show on air. And oh, I was really? eating, I was eating, I wouldn't have minded other than I was eating cheese and crackers at the time. And it really kind of like punctured the, the warm fuzzy feeling I get when I'm eating cheese and crackers, you know? Um, mm. But uh, Why, uh, wow, that was today's podcast. I, I, I caught the very beginning and then I had to go out and then, you know, was on with uh, Adnan for our yeah. hour. But yeah. wow, so we had little drummy drums. There's little the drummy drums, yeah, yeah. Um, and also I do have a recording uh, with uh, one Hannah Feldman that shall be released very soon as well. Um, oh, shocking, shocking revelations in that, in that audio of uh, David's behavior at a public movie theater. Wow, uh, you've got the receipts. Yeah, I've got the receipts. Oh no. On the way. Yeah. Um, but you know. Inquiring I'm, I, minds want to know. Yes. Yeah. Um, that'll all be coming soon once I get around to editing, but, um, well, yeah, I think uh, clearly there's been, um, a lot of ructions and roilings, uh, yeah. it must be a, it's a tense time of readjustment perhaps for the, for the left, uh, on the media, it sounds like. And you know, yes, perhaps it is, but I think we owe it to ourselves and everyone else Adnan, to be true to our beliefs. Indeed. So when I... I could not vote for Hillary and I could not vote for Biden. And I couldn't even pretend that, you know, this was going to be a good thing. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I, I, look, well, I'm not going to blame anybody for voting for anyone else. Right. But I couldn't lie and say that I could vote for this or that I was even, you know, well, and I think um, even on those levels, see, I, yeah. I think what you're doing is actually more valuable than whether we publicly take a principled stand, as it were, like, you know, actually doing the organizing work through an electoral campaign and thinking of it as a stepping stone to building a wider movement, both, mm. you know, to try and get this good, uh, you know, figure elected. Uh, because of all the benefits that that could bring and the possibilities it may open, but also 
that organizing and building those relationships in the community and building a power base in the community that will stand up for lots of other issues outside of the elections, that's what I thought was really valuable about the way in which the Bernie campaign was right. organizing is almost like these were movement rallies. They would have people from local struggles coming and addressing the crowd and they would get more attention for the causes that they're working on. That was a really valuable kind of interaction. It was a different model for how these electoral campaigns could be run. And I think the only problem was is that it turned into a regular election campaign with the calculus in the primaries of let's stop now because we can't win. The point is you don't know what can happen. And oh, that's right. Build that movement to the bitter end because that's how you build the social power and you give people something to keep fighting for. Uh, so that's, I think, the lesson you know, that I took from the Bernie campaign, because it was a transformative sort of experience, right. but it needed to keep continuing. And it didn't have a structure and an organization past the point when Bernie called it quits, um, because that was just a regular political electoral move. That wasn't a movement building kind of move. That, that you know what, that that's a very good way. That's a very good point, Adnan. I mean, that was, it was certainly just, uh, it was enervating and demoralizing to just watch him become a regular Democrat, you know, reasonable Democrat. And it wasn't just because we lost, it was how we lost. You know, um, I think everyone on John's campaign in 2008, when he was running against Foster, and he could, should have been our congressperson, um, they, every single person thought about those 400 votes, you know, like, and it, and you could tell that unlike a bad campaign where there's just recriminations and blame, I swear to God, everyone who was involved in that campaign said, thought the same thing I did. I could have gotten those 400 votes, Sam. And it's like, you never go back to being the way you were about things. And, uh, and so, well, you know, Bernie Sanders is one guy. I, and I think, I've, I think a lot of us have moved beyond him Absolutely, Even though I will yeah. be forever grateful for what he did. And he did probably as much as he could have possibly done. And now he's back in the Senate. He might not have, if he had done what you suggested, he may not have the position he has in the Senate. He and I'm, wouldn't. I'm still thinking he's got more surprises for people. I'm optimistic. But that's not my business now. My business right. isn't to make life easy for Bernie Sanders or the yeah. Democratic Party. My business is to be, you know, to push these things and to push political discourse and to get John elected and change the politics of the state of Illinois. Yeah, I think we can do we can do more of that in these local contexts. Let's yeah. take that energy in in these uh, venues where we can have more influence, build our social movements and incubate the good ideas and the better conversations about the possibilities that we need to be able to introduce at the federal level. If we don't have that open to us, let's do our work at the at, at a different level. Well, you know, and that's one of the reasons why John told me a year ago he was running. He's, he went after Bernie Sanders. I think he solidified that after Bernie Sanders dropped out. And he says, you know, the, the progressives desperately need a win here. And I'm going to try. Exactly. Um, so we, we look to Seattle because we have, you know, a council, you know, person doing great work there. 
I hope we will be looking soon to the exciting possibilities that the example and lessons of Aurora can tell us and oh. inspire others to follow in the same suit. Where can uh, where can people donate if they are in America and uh, they wanted to? Uh... Uh, John Aurora.com and he's also a John Lash. His name is spelled L A E S C H. Okay, but it's pronounced Lash, and he's uh, he has an Act Blue account. So, but John for Aurora and, uh, and yes, we could use a few shekels right now because one yeah. more mailing, you know, to get everybody, we, we get those 400 we, votes. Yeah. Get those 400 yeah. votes, baby. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, Godspeed, you're doing God's work. Um, uh, really look forward to checking in again in a few weeks and hearing, uh, oh, yeah. hearing more. Adnan, what do you want to plug before, uh, before I let you go? I got to go because, uh, I yeah. do I, my chance to, um, fool uh, member of a decaying European dynasty into marrying me will turn into a pumpkin around midnight. Oh boy, you so. gotta see. Oh boy, you need to get off this this phone call. Bring, yeah. bring, uh, you know, bring uh, her to uh, Valley Vox Theater tomorrow night, Friday night, March 26, 4.30 p.m. Eastern for the pre-show, 5 p.m. for the screening. And when the film finishes, we'll have a great discussion. And they can just Google Valley Vox Theater? That's right. Uh, Great. You can find it on, on Twitter at Valley Vox or write to them to get the link, uh, Valley Vox Theater mm. at gmail.com. Great. And then um, if, uh, if you're not following us on Twitter already, you know, join the party at Pod Rule. Um, also, we have some great premium bonus content up. I mean, I think my, my friend of mine was talking about my mixtapes on the hockey podcast recently. So you guys can feel free to talk up my mixtapes as well. They're um, good. They're good. <laughs> uh, always a pleasure talking to you both. So thank you so much for taking the time. I know you've probably right. both had a long day, so we greatly appreciate it. And uh, yeah, enjoy your evening and we'll check in real soon. Okay. Okay. Take care, Isaac. Bye, Bye Marianne. Isaac. Bye -bye. Great talking. Bye. -bye.